welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, March 13th, 2016, on the basis of Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Why can't you be more like so-and-so? Have you ever been asked that question before? If so, you know what a hurtful question that can be. You see, all by ourselves, all on our own, we're already very, very good, or maybe I should say very, very bad, at constantly comparing ourselves to other people, to other siblings, to other students, to other spouses, to other parents, to other peers, to other employees. And so to hear that someone else is making those comparisons too, to find out that some of the very worst thoughts that you think about yourself Well, someone else thinks them too, but that really hurts, doesn't it? Why can't you be more like so-and-so? Among the many reasons why living a life of, of constant comparisons is such an unhealthy thing is that it sort of programs us to approach our relationship with God in exactly the same way. You see, we hear this news that that God loves everyone, that God forgives everyone, that those things are free and unconditional. And intellectually, we sort of nod our heads in agreement, but then we end up going on to make comparisons, comparing ourselves to other people who believe the same thing. Sometimes those comparisons lead us to a false sense of pride. Well, surely God must be happy with me because I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Maybe more often, those comparisons lead us to despair. God can't possibly be happy with me because I'm nowhere as good as so-and-so. One Christian author sort of summarized the problem this way. He said, in a world that constantly compares people, ranking them as more or less intelligent, more or less attractive, more or less successful. It is a difficult thing to really believe in a divine love that does not do the very same thing. Well, thankfully, the Word of God that's in front of us today gives us some much-needed help for those times when we are tempted to compare ourselves to other people and especially to other Christians. As we look at these verses, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to answer two primary questions for us. First of all, if we're going to compare, what exactly is the standard? To whom should we be comparing ourselves? What is the profile of a perfect child of God? And then secondly, how do we make sure that we measure up? So you hear that phrase, perfect child of God. And maybe you're tempted to think, okay, I I know where this is going. In the Christian faith, Jesus is the perfect child. and, And it seems that more often than not, the moral of the story is that we need to be more like Jesus. It's not at all what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying in these verses. In fact, he's saying exactly the opposite. In fact, believe it or not, the writer is saying in these verses that that in order for him to become the perfect child, Jesus actually needed to be more like you. Let me explain. Imagine you had a child 
who woke up every morning and said, Mom and Dad, can I please make my bed? Can I please get myself breakfast? Can I please get dressed in clothes that that actually match and won't embarrass you when I leave the house? Can I please brush my teeth and pack my lunch and get all ready to go? A child who in the evening says, Mom and Dad, can I please clear the table and load the dishwasher and take out the trash? A child who on the weekend says, Can I please mow the lawn? Can I please weed the flower bed? Can I please have a garage sale? Because I want to sell my bike and my Xbox and all of my toys because, Dad, Dad, it looks as though you could use a few extra fishing lures in your tackle box. And, Mom, that expensive bottle of perfume that I know you like so much, well, it it looks like it's almost empty. That might match our profile of what the perfect child would look like, a child whose every thought and every want is perfectly in line with mom and dad's. And that's actually a pretty good picture of the eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father and God the Son, their, their wills, their thoughts, their desires were always perfectly in line, perfectly in harmony. But as a result, that meant that one important component, in fact, one essential component of our experience as children was actually impossible for God's Son. And that component was obedience. You see, obedience requires two wills that are in conflict with one another. Obedience is when a child willingly submits his or her will to the will of the parent. And so by nature, it was impossible for Jesus to obey his father because because their wills, their thoughts, their desires were always perfectly in line. But then Jesus came to earth. Jesus became one of you. And God set in front of him a plan. A plan that he would be charged with the sin of all mankind and be sentenced to pay the penalty that those sins merited. He would be forsaken by his father and left to hang and die on a cross. And it's sort of interesting to see as the life of Jesus progressed and as he got closer and closer to the fulfillment of this plan, how his will became increasingly opposed to that plan. When he first started to talk to his disciples about it, he he was able to do so pretty calmly, pretty matter-of-factly, almost resolutely. But then, as you heard in today's gospel, when it was the week before this plan would be fulfilled, Jesus actually admitted, my soul is troubled. But in spite of that, he still said, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. But then, then when the time finally came for Jesus to fulfill the Father's plan, his will so forcefully recoiled from everything that lay in front of him that he did actually ask to get out. The night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, with sweat that was like drops of blood, Jesus prayed that his Father would spare him from the suffering and death that he planned. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about when he says this, that he, Jesus, offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. 
So now you had a son's will and a father's will that were in conflict with one another. But you still had a son who was perfectly willing to submit his will to his father's. Even as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane to be spared from suffering and death, he finished by saying, not my will, but yours be done. See, in order for Jesus to be able to live out that idea of obedience, Jesus actually had to become more like you and me. He had to know what it was like to have a will that was in conflict with his father's. And yet he perfectly obeyed the way a perfect child would. The writer to the Hebrews sums it up this way. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So an essential component of the profile of a perfect child of God is this concept of obedience. In order to learn obedience, Jesus had to become more like us. You and I, we get opportunities for obedience each and every day. So how do we do? I'd like to focus our attention this morning on on some specific examples that are directly comparable to the one that Jesus went through. You see, there there was nothing wrong, nothing sinful with Jesus not wanting to suffer and die that agonizing death, and yet he had to submit his will to his father's. Well, in the same way, you and I think and want and desire all kinds of things that in and of themselves aren't evil. Maybe they're even blessings from God. But we often come to that very same crossroads where our will and our Father's will are in conflict. So let me ask, how many hours do you think it would take for you to be able to do all of the things that you want and get done everything that needs to be done each and every week? Normally you get 168 of them, right? This week you get 167, so you better get busy. How many do you think you would, you would want? How many do you think you, it would take? We could probably fill twice that many, right? And again, let's assume that all of those activities that we would like to do and all of the things that we need to get done are good, God-pleasing things. But we also know that it is our Father's will to spend time with Him. To spend time with Him, hearing His Word, gathered around his word as a family, reflecting on the things that he's done for us, talking to him in prayer. And of course, that doesn't mean that having an active social life or being involved in sports leagues or or playing all kinds of rounds of golf or even watching all kinds of TV doesn't mean that those things are evil. It simply means that if the father is going to have what he wants, we're going to have to give up some of what we want. That's obedience. Or another example, let me ask you this. How much money do you think it would take for you to be able to buy everything you've ever wanted to buy, everything you need and everything you could possibly want? Is it safe to say that that's a little bit more than your current household income? Maybe about the same amount as the gross national product of a small country over in Europe would do? And again, let's assume that all those things that we want to purchase are good, God-pleasing things. But we also know that It's our Father's will that we use the money that he's given us to provide for our families, to help people who are in need, to honestly and faithfully pay our taxes, and also to contribute to the spread of the gospel through our offerings at church. 
And of course, that doesn't mean that fancy cars and big houses and annual ski passes are evil, wicked things, but it does mean that if our father is going to have what he wants, we're going to have to give up some of what we want. Again, that's obedience. See, in order for him to learn obedience, Jesus actually had to become more like us. We've had opportunities for for obedience from the day that we're born. The problem is that so often, rather than submitting to our Father's will, we actually exert our will over our Father's. We sort of say the opposite of what Jesus said in the garden. Not your will, but my will be done. So if obedience is part and parcel of the profile of a perfect child, how can you and I possibly ever measure up? Well, the writer to the Hebrews has more to say. He says this, Once made perfect, he, that is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Again, we might be tempted to think, see, I I told you, Jesus is the perfect child, and the moral of the story is that we need to be more like Jesus. But notice very carefully what the writer says in verse 9. He says that Jesus became the source of salvation for those who obey Jesus, not for those who obey the Father like Jesus. And those are two very different things. So what does it mean exactly to obey Jesus? Well, let's work with the definition of obedience that we've been using. You've got two wills that are in conflict with one another, and one is willing to submit to the other. So what do you think, more than anything else, Jesus wants for you? Well, he became one of you so that he could learn obedience. He was charged with the sins of all mankind, and he suffered the penalty that those sins merited. What could Jesus possibly want more? than for that painful, agonizing work that he did to actually count, to actually mean something, to actually matter. In fact, we're told here in Hebrews and other places too that Jesus actually expresses that will up in heaven at the right hand of the Father. It's like he's constantly chirping in God the Father's ear, saying, Father, I followed your plan. I did everything that you wanted me to do, and so you have to let what I did count for them. That's what Jesus wants. Realize how contrary that is to what you and I by nature want. By nature, we want to stand in front of God on the basis of our own merits. We want to find a way to excuse all of our sin, justify our sin, minimize our sin, blame other people for our sin, and at the same time, puff up and boast and brag about our goodness. The last thing we want is to abandon all hope in ourselves. And so obeying Jesus means submitting our will to his. Abandoning all hope and confidence in ourselves and putting that hope and confidence in what he has done. Do you realize what what happens for the person who does I want you to imagine for a moment as a parent having to choose which of two children is your favorite. And on the one hand, one of those children is Jesus. The other child is you. 
You know, it's not all that far-fetched, is it? And I think it's one of a parent's worst nightmares when we realize that, that our kids are growing up to be exactly like us, that we've passed along all of our very worst traits. And so you do kind of know what it's like to be a parent of yourself. So you've got Jesus on the right and you on the left. Which one is better? Which one is your favorite? Which one better fits the profile of a perfect child? Seems easy, right? Now imagine God the Father asking that same question. He's got his own dear son, Jesus, on the right, and he's got you on the left. With which one is he more pleased? With which one is he more proud? Which one better fits the profile of a perfect child? Well, the incredible, unbelievable, too good to be true, good news of the Bible is that when God is faced with that decision, it's a dead tie. You see, Jesus, in order to learn obedience, he had to become more like you. Well, by our obedience to Jesus, we actually become exactly like him. By clinging in faith to the work that he did for us, we become, in God's eyes, exactly like Jesus. And that means that one thing that that you will never, ever, ever hear from your Father in heaven is why can't you be more like Jesus? Because in faith, through faith in him, you already are a perfect child of your Father in heaven. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.